The Apostle Paul is writing back to the church of Thessalonica. It's only been about a year uh, since he wrote 1 Thessalonians. The purpose that he's writing is twofold. Uh, The first is the church is experiencing tremendous persecution, so he wants to encourage them. And the second is they've gotten some false teaching about the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. So Paul wants to clear that up. If you remember the background of this church, Paul and Silas came into Thessalonica and God quickly birthed a church, but they had to leave shortly thereafter because of persecution. As we think of churches being persecuted, I read an article this week by a ministry called Open Door, and they estimate that one in every eight Christians in the world right now is experiencing persecution for uh, their faith. Now, that's much higher in Africa and in Asia. One out of every six believers in Africa experiencing persecution, and two out of every five in Asia experiencing persecution. They do estimate that persecution is on the rise. 260 million uh, last year lived in a region of the world that was hostile to the gospel, and that number is up to 309 uh, million. So throughout the world, we're seeing this uh, greater amount of persecution against Christ and against the church. But David Curry, in this article, he says this that I found to be encouraging. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying. So you might think that, well, because God's people are are suffering that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So man's perspective, the church is persecuted, you'd think it'd be shrinking, but from God's perspective, he's doing a great work in the midst of persecution. That's what's taking place for the church of Thessalonica. They're remaining strong in their faith and in their love for others, even though there was great opposition. Our hearts can tend to be fearful that we're starting to live in a culture that's counter to the gospel, counter to Christ, counter to the scriptures, but we need to be encouraged that God does his greatest work in the midst of persecution. Oftentimes throughout the book of Acts and throughout church history, God has used persecution to actually grow his church. So I hope this morning that we're encouraged in the midst of challenge, in the midst of of difficulty. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These three men traveling together, serving the Lord together. Paul's always serving inside of a team. Silvanus is another name for Silas. Silas joined Paul on his second missionary journey. He was with Paul when they were thrown into prison in Philippi. They chose to worship the Lord in prison and God was gracious to give a very dramatic jailbreak with that earthquake. Timothy is a young man whose father we know from scripture was a Greek, was a a Gentile, and his mom was a Jew. Would be a a difficult background at that that time. No mention of his father having saving faith, but his mom had saving faith and his grandma. Paul invited him to journey with him, and Timothy really grew to be a mighty man in the Lord. 
It's addressed to the church, the church of the Thessalonians. It's a word that we use a lot, but do we know what it means? Uh, it means to be called out. Ekklesia in the Greek. The churches were called out of darkness, were, were called out of a lost and dying world to be the body of Christ, to be followers of Christ, to be the family of God. It's such an important time right now for the church to be the church and not the building. Don't think of the building when you think of the church. We don't need a building to be the church, but we do need one another. This big building is actually kind of scary when you're all not here. When you walk around this big building and no one's here, like, man, this is kind of a creepy place, right? We're the body, and this is the time to plug into relationships uh, with one another for the purpose of going out and sharing the gospel with those that don't know Christ their Savior. In August, we're going to kick off a lot of new connect groups, a lot of new uh, small groups. If you're looking for a fellowship, you're going to meet in homes. So be looking for those uh, as they'll be coming on the church's website. In verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's greeting, but it's rich with meaning. Grace to you and peace. He is praying that God would give a fresh outpouring of grace and peace from the Father, from the Lord Jesus, to the church of Thessalonica as they receive this letter. Grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. If you were an elementary kid, let's say fifth grade, and one of your buddies punches you in the face and you choose to give him a $5 bill, that would be grace. That's not how I handled things in fifth grade. God is gracious in spite of us because of Christ. Grace is not something that ends in our lives when we receive Christ as our Savior, but we need a fresh outpouring of God's grace in our lives. Because of sin, because of weakness, because of brokenness, and God is ready to supply it. Peace always follows grace. When we understand God's grace, we get to live in his peace. We have peace with God, that we're in right relationship with God. We have his favor. We're robed in his righteousness. Also, the peace of God that surpasses understanding and difficulty to know that God's got it. So church, brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. May he give you grace afresh in your life. May he give you peace afresh in your life. What, what a wonderful way to greet each other. In verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it's fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Paul says he's bound to give thanks. This word bound actually means a debt to pay. He feels that there's a debt owed unto God to give thanks. Oftentimes we think of unbelievers that aren't doing well, whether they're going through trial or they're faltering, drifting, and that's important and we can see why we would think of brothers and sisters in Christ in need. But we also want to be careful to thank God for believers that are doing well. And Paul says, man, the church of Thessalonica, in the midst of persecution and tribulation, did not shrink back. And he wanted to give God thanks for that. Notice that their faith 
grew exceedingly during this time. Also, their love abounded towards everyone. This doesn't always happen in persecution. It doesn't always happen in trial, but it can if we're available to it, if we're open to it, that God would use difficulty to cause our faith to grow. Notice the Bible says your faith grows exceedingly. This is exponential growth. This is a seed growing into a plant and and bearing fruit. The church of Thessalonica, despite all odds, is experiencing exponential growth in their faith. Persecution, trial can test our faith in God. Lord, if you're good, how could you allow this to happen? God, you're, you're sovereign and you're in control, but yet you're allowing this person to come against me because of my faith in Christ. But also it can move us to trust God more. God, I know your character. It's displayed by you giving your son upon the cross. I, I'm choosing to, to trust you. May God use trial in our life to, to grow our faith, to grow our, our patience, to, to grow our love. I suggest to you this morning, without difficulty, it's really hard for our faith to grow. The difficulty really gives us an opportunity to trust God in a deeper way. We look back on things in our lives and go, man, I don't ever want to go through that again, but that really grew my faith in the Lord. That really grew my dependency in the Lord. Also, the church grew in love, love for for everyone. If we allow it, pain will soften us and we'll see people differently, people that we tend to walk by. But when we're in pain and we're in trial and we're in difficulty, we start to see others around us that that are in pain. We want to give to them the love of God that we've enjoyed. We want to share with them the comfort that God has given to us. Verse 4. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all persecution and tribulations that you endure. Paul says we're sharing with the other churches. Have you heard about the church of Thessalonica? That they're continuing in faith and endurance. They haven't stopped trusting the Lord. They haven't stopped continuing on in the things that God would have for them. Jesus instructed us how to respond to persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, what are we to do? We're to rejoice. Because this is evidence that we're in the family of God. This is, this is evidence that we're bearing the light of God. God gives a promise here and he says, great is your reward in heaven. We don't know how this is going to work out in heaven, but Jesus taught us to care about reward in heaven. So if you have somebody that's coming against you because of your faith in Christ, and you can honestly say, this is due to righteousness sake, because sometimes we think that someone's persecuting us for Jesus sake, 
but it's actually just my own sinfulness. If I'm honest, I'm being an idiot. And because I'm being an idiot, I'm being a moron, right? People are coming against me, and I may not be seeing things clearly, and I'm like, man, I'm really getting persecuted for Christ. And everybody else is going, no, you're making bad decisions. You know, you're being a jerk. No, no wonder that people are coming against you. But those, those times where we say, because I'm a, a follower of Christ, and there's persecution that, that is coming. Some of you are experiencing this, and your workplace has become more and more cold to Christ, more and more cold to the gospel. You can have any opinion at work except the opinion of Jesus. You can have any opinion on sexuality except for the biblical truth on on sexuality. And you're starting to experience that persecution that's taking place on college campuses. You're starting to experience that it's coming against you. What's our response? Our response is one of rejoicing in the Lord. Oftentimes, the one who is persecuting a Christian is being convicted. If you take a rock and throw it into a pack of dogs, the dog that's hit squeals the loudest. And when someone is really coming against the cause of Christ, there's usually conviction that is taking place. And God has the ability to save the one who is bringing the persecution. We see that with Saul, who became Paul. He's persecuting Christians, angry at, at Christians, is standing there in approval when Stephen is martyred, holding on to the coats of those that are stoning Stephen. And Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you imagine someone's killing you because you're a Christian and you're extending forgiveness to them? I think those words, that image stuck into the heart and mind of Saul. God used it. Maybe you have a Saul in your life. You've got a Saul in your, your family. Pray for him. God can change their heart and he can bring them to Christ. So whether it's tribulation or it's persecution, to respond in faith, to respond in endurance. And you may say, like I do sometimes, man, my, my faith is struggling. My faith feels weak. The, the trial seems to be pounding me down. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Go to the Lord with our unbelief. God, would you help me? I, I want to trust you in this, but, but I'm struggling. Faith also comes by hearing the word of God. As we hear and read and study the word of God, our faith is, is built up. So if your faith is weak this morning, have a conversation with the Lord about it. Spend more time in the word. Let God build up your faith. We get weary. We get weak. We feel like giving up. And in those times, to wait upon the Lord Spend time with the Lord. God, would you strengthen me? Maybe th this morning you're just like, I'm so weary. I'm so weary of the trial. I'm, I'm weary of the pressure. I'm, I'm exhausted by this culture that doesn't want anything to do with Christ. So let's wait upon the Lord. What did this look like behind the scenes for the church of Thessalonica in order for them to continue to have faith and endurance and trial? It was drawing near to God. And it's as they were drawing near to God that God increased their faith. In verse 5, 
which is the manifold evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Paul's going to speak more of, of God's judgment in a moment. That you'd be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer. Peter writes about this as well, of being counted worthy to, to suffer for righteousness' sake. This is 1 Peter 4, verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Oftentimes we're like, what in the world? Where did this trial come from? Why are people so opposed to Christ? But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, to when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We've suffered enough for our own sin. We've suffered enough for our own unrighteousness. Let's suffer for Christ's sake. When we're counted worthy to suffer for, for the kingdom, it's a, it's a great privilege, it's a great honor, even though it's very difficult. In verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Paul wanted the church of Thessalonica to know those that come against you, God's going to deal with them. God's going to repay them for the trouble that they have caused you. God is our defense. God is our advocate. God is working throughout the world as the world is getting persecuted. Unbelievers may not realize it, but they're picking on God's kids. They're picking on God's bride. God stood up for the church that was being persecuted in the book of Acts by Saul. Jesus confronts Saul with these words, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, wait a second. I thought Saul was persecuting the church. When he persecuted the church, he was persecuting Jesus. One of two things are going to happen. That person that's coming against Christ, they're either going to get saved or ultimately they've got to be accountable to the Lord. And God's going to repay them for that hostile heart towards the things of God. Here's where our rest comes in verse 7. To give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When does rest come for us? When Jesus comes. That's when the physical rest comes. We have access to the spiritual rest in Christ right now for him to give our hearts peace, but the physical rest is going to happen when Christ returns. Jesus is going to make all things right. He's going to return in justice. Can you imagine this world under the reign of Christ? That's what we wait for. That's what we long for. All the governments of the world, all the nations of the world, subject to Christ. Economics, all subject to Christ. My goodness, healthcare, subject to Christ. How beautiful and wonderful that is, is going to be. So when Christ returns, those that are against Christ, those that have rejected Christ, 
then he holds them accountable with his justice. He holds them accountable with his vengeance, with his mighty angels. In the Old Testament, we have the Assyrians attacking the Israelites. They cry out to the Lord. God sends an angel. That angel kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Throughout Scripture, when someone encounters an angel, they're terrified. We, we think of angels as these weak beings that are chubby that we call cherubims, and I don't think so, right? And angels are nothing compared to Christ, nothing compared to, to God. And when Jesus returns, he's going to return with his mighty angels. It's so important to know and understand that the Bible promises a literal return of Jesus. When Jesus ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives, the disciples are are looking up into the sky, what do we do now? And an angel comes to them and says, look, the same way that Jesus ascended, he's gonna descend right here on the Mount of Olives. Christ will return on the Mount of Olives. We look forward to that second coming of Christ, but that's when our rest is gonna come. That's when the justice is going to take place. In verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's judgment's described as a flaming fire. God taking vengeance. We think of vengeance as something that is wicked many times because oftentimes it's sinful for us. But God's vengeance is righteous. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. This is the administration of his justice, his vengeance. And who is God going to bring his vengeance on? Those who don't know God and those who don't know the gospel. That don't obey the gospel. Specifically, it says, who do not obey the gospel. So what is the gospel? The scripture tells us the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Our sin separates us from God. Our sin is when we willfully rebel, but also when we miss the mark, where we're trying to do good, but in our sinfulness, we miss the mark. Ever been there? And we're there all the time, aren't we? We've got every intention to to do right, but then we fall short. So our sin separates us from God, and God in his justice has to punish our sin. So he sent his son to be the savior of the world. The good news is that Jesus came, and he took our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment for our sin. To all those who repent, repent means to do a 180. Those that repent and believe and call upon the name of the Lord are saved. We're given everlasting life. But to those who don't obey the gospel, to not obey the gospels, to not receive it, to not believe it, to reject it. Some say, I don't believe Jesus existed. Some say, I don't need God's son to die for my sins. I'm doing good on my own. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than this person here and that person there. And they're not looking at God's standard. They're comparing themselves with, with other sinners. 
if we're at the Pacific Ocean and we decide that we're going to swim to Hawaii, you might be an Olympic swimmer. And I may be a dog paddler. Hardly know how to swim. But are either of us going to make it to Hawaii? There's no way, right? And you may be better than somebody else in your family. Your morality may be better. But when you're looking at God's standard of holiness, we all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's when a person rejects Christ for whatever reason, not once, not twice, but throughout their whole lives. God's gracious, and the moment that we see our need for Christ, we turn from sin, we believe in Christ, we're saved. But to those that do reject Christ through their whole lives, this is what comes in verse 9. Very descriptive terms from the Apostle Paul. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Standing before God on our own sin, then we receive punishment. And notice it's everlasting destruction. The Bible teaches that we do live eternally. We're made in God's image. We have a soul that lives for eternity. The question is location. What do we say in real estate? Location, location, location. Couldn't be more important when it comes to eternity. You will live forever, either in heaven or hell. Here, hell is described as everlasting destruction from the presence of God. What makes hell, hell is God's presence is not there. Jesus described hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of of outer darkness. If you read the Bible honestly, you see very clearly the teaching of, of hell. This has become very controversial in the world that we live in. How could a loving God send people to hell? Well, remember, God doesn't want any to perish. He gave his son He gives us opportunity to choose to be in relationship with him. When we dismiss the teaching of hell, we really undermine our sin. Sin becomes something, well, ah, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. It's it's not that big of a deal. I don't really think it's fair for God to judge sin for all of eternity. We put ourselves in the position of judging God instead of realizing that God has the right to judge us. If he's God, then he has that position of being judge. Also, when we dismiss the teaching of hell, we undermine the work of Christ upon the cross. If eternal punishment is not real, then why did Christ have to come and die upon the cross? What's so significant about his death and his resurrection? We undermine what he's accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. So if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, can I plead with you this morning that you would trust Christ? That you would hear his love for you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You don't know when you're going to step into eternity. Oftentimes we think that we have more time, but we don't know. It could be a car accident. It could be something happens with your health. 
But I do know this, every one of us has an expiration date that only God knows. He knows that expiration date. And are you prepared? You know your heart. You know whether you've trusted Christ for salvation. And for some reason, if you haven't yet trusted him this morning, in just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to pray and confess Christ, to receive him as your savior, and don't wait. But we also have to pause here as believers. Because as believers, if we believe the Bible, if we believe the scriptures, which we do, this is heavy. People that reject Christ are going to hell. And do we care? Do we care that people are are going to hell? Who are those in your family that don't know Jesus? And are we burdened with that? Are we praying for them? That God would be gracious to intervene, that they would see their need for Christ, that they would come to know Jesus as their Savior. Our friends that don't know the Lord. Strangers that don't know the Lord. People from other countries, other nations that don't know the Lord. There are times where my heart is really burdened for the loss, for the lost, for this reality of eternal destruction. But then there's other times where I get solely focused on my own life. I get solely focused on survival, laundry, groceries, bills, the yard. And I'm not mindful of those that don't know Christ as their Savior. So we may we pause and allow this to hit us, the gravity of it, and that God would give us a heart for the lost. In verse 10, when he comes in that day, to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. That day, the the second coming of Christ, believers are going to be glorified with Christ. We're going to return with Christ and rule and reign with him. And Christ is admired by all those who believe. We're going to be looking at Christ with even more love and adoration. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What's amazing is Paul didn't pray that God would remove the church of Thessalonica from the persecution. That would tend to be my prayer. Lord, get us out of this trouble. Get us out of this this difficulty. But instead, Paul is praying that God's goodness, that his power would be revealed through this difficult situation. Oftentimes when we think of our country, we want a more comfortable environment to be able to live in. We pray that God would cause our country to be more accommodating to the things of Christ. What if God wants to do something even deeper than just make things more comfortable And he wants to win hearts and minds for Christ. What if God's plan in his kingdom isn't necessarily to make things easier for us, but to give us strength that can only come from his power so that his goodness could be revealed, so that people could see who Jesus Christ is? I don't know. I don't know what God's doing, but I do know 
in God's economy, sometimes his answer is different than ours. Have you experienced that? His ways are not our ways. And sometimes he allows us to stay in trial, allows us to stay in difficulty so we can grow and his name can be proclaimed. I think it's good timing with Dan going to Iraq. It's humbling to think of believers in Iraq that may lose their life because they're gathering to study the word and worship. I mean, imagine, okay, I, I might go to church today, and if the wrong people show up, I might lose my life. But I'm choosing to get together with believers. People trying to make a decision if they're going to trust Christ for salvation and realize, man, if I trust Christ for salvation, things are going to look a whole lot different. So let's pray for them. Let's pray for those believers throughout the world that are, that are suffering. Here's the end game. Here's the goal in verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God be glorified in the church of Thessalonica. May God be glorified in our lives. This can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're sinful, we're fallen, but yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, that someone could see God in a greater way, that God would be magnified through our lives. That's our prayer. That's our desire, is that God would be glorified and magnified. Two takeaways for us this morning. The first is this. Are you in persecution? Are you in trial? Continue in faith and endurance. Ask the Lord to strengthen your faith and give you endurance. As we come and celebrate communion in a moment, meet with Jesus and trust him. God, I trust you for salvation, and I'm trusting you in this, this difficulty, and may you be glorified in the difficulty. God, strengthen my faith. Give me endurance. I'm weary. I'm tired. I, I need, need you. Then also, the second takeaway for us as believers as as we believe in heaven, we believe in hell, we believe the teachings of Christ, is to have a heart for the lost. To pray for the lost, to be intentional about spending time with those that don't know Christ as their Savior. It's so important to be together with believers. Like we talked about with, with small groups and gatherings like this. But, but what's the purpose? So that we can be built up and be edified to go out and to love unbelievers. At the end of Jesus' life, he's coming through Jericho. He's just passing through. He's headed to Jerusalem. He knows the cross is before him. And there's a man of short stature. When the Bible calls you short, I wonder how short are you? But Zacchaeus is short enough where he, he climbs a tree, a sycamore tree, because he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus saw Zacchaeus, and he looked up in the tree. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Jesus changed the whole agenda of that day, the whole timetable of that day. Jesus could have been thinking about the cross that was before him, but he wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on Zacchaeus. 
people were appalled that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house because he was the chief tax collector. But Jesus gives us this statement. He said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission of Jesus. Are we intentional about lost people? Are we like, man, I get to hang out with lost people today. Or is it like, man, these coworkers are such knuckleheads. They're in darkness, they're lost, I'm just sick of their language, and the list goes, goes on and on. Or I get to spend time with lost believers today. Do we think in terms of, man, I'm going for a hike. Who, who's someone that doesn't know Jesus that I can invite to and go along with me? Or is it always, you know, I'm going to grab some believers and go for a hike. Yeah, do that. But as Jesus lived his life, he was looking for the lost. He was looking for you and me. He gave us a job to do. He says, go, I want you to go and preach the gospel to the whole world. Make disciples of the whole world. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be concerned with how big our house was, how much money we had, the cars that we drove. You know what we're going to be concerned with? The people around us, did they know Jesus? Going to be looking around the throne room of God, man, are my kids there? Is my family there? Is my friends there? That's what's going to be important to us. A lot of times we think that God only uses perfect people. Scripture tells us otherwise. God uses broken people that are trophies of his grace. He uses available people. As you're involved in people's lives that don't know Christ as their Savior, say the name of Jesus. Say it out loud. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again. Eternity is real. May we be emboldened to share the good news with people. Do you know what the church really needs right now? Not just our church, but the church as a whole is a gospel movement. What we really need to be doing is sharing the gospel. Our community needs the gospel. This world needs the gospel. Sometimes in our relationship with Jesus, we feel like, man, I'm just not encountering Jesus very much. And maybe it's because we're not in step with his mission. His mission is the lost. And am I following him into his mission? We make the mistake of thinking, well, Jesus in me, Jesus in me, Jesus, you're my bread of life. Jesus, you're my living water. And, and that's true. And maybe we extend our focus to Jesus in my family, Jesus in my family, Jesus in my church. Those things are true, but it's Jesus in the world. For God so loved the world, we get to be part of his program. We get to be part of his family business, which is sharing the, the love of Jesus Christ. So may God meet us this morning and give us that fresh heart for the lost. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, as we pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand. And you're not raising your hand to me, to anybody around you, but you're raising your hand to Christ of Jesus saved me. Jesus, I realize that I'm a sinner. 
God is showing you right now that you've fallen short and you're becoming aware of your sin in a way that you haven't been in the past. But he's also revealing his love to you. That he sent his son to die specifically for your sin. And he rose again. And as you believe in him, he's ready to save you. He's ready to forgive you. So that you don't go to hell, that you go to heaven, but that you're in relationship with him. The beauty of the gospel as we believe is we become adopted sons and daughters of God. God wants you to be in his family, to be his child. That love, that emptiness that you're feeling, it can only be found in Christ. Christ is real. He's more real than anything else. And he is ready to save you if you'll repent and believe, inviting him to be the Lord of your life. The beauty of the gospel is we don't have to be the Lord of our life anymore. We get to turn our life over to him and allow him to be our Lord, to take direction from him. If you know Christ, if you pray with me, also online, if you're ready to receive Christ, if you'd raise your hand as well, and let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we believe that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe that you save. We believe that you're here. And Jesus, would you speak to hearts, to those that need to know you. You know what they're thinking. You know their arguments. You know what's holding them back. And would you draw them with your love? If this makes sense to you and you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, would you raise your hand and just leave it up and I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning. Give you the opportunity to pray with me. Praise the Lord. Anybody else this morning that says, I want to receive Christ as, as my Savior? Praise God. I see your hand in the back as well. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Online, the Lord sees you. Hands raised. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. That you died for my sins and rose again. I acknowledge my sin before you. And turn away from it. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, I thank you for those that have believed the gospel. I thank you for your promise as we believe the gospel. That we're saved. That we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you bless them? Would you protect them? Would you grow them in you? And Lord, we don't want to simply be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers. And would you give us a heart for the lost and the power of the Holy Spirit to love and to share. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.